Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, um, for getting us out of our beds, um, and what a good way uh, to spend our mornings, but with you, Lord, this is, it's a blessing to be in the, this house of worship with these people we love, and um, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your scripture today, that we would consider the hand you've had in history, uh, that we would consider what you've done to bring us where we are today and what you're going to use us, uh, how you're going to use us to lay foundations for future generations, Lord. Um, So please, again, be with us today. May your presence be here. Bless the worship. Bless the 1030 speaker, Stephen. And uh, praise you, God. Amen. All right. So, Uh, A couple weeks ago, I spoke on like a general introduction to the church as a family and how uh, scripture uses uh, familial language and how we should be concerned about that, that that means uh, that's something, that's a way we should think. If God thinks in terms of family, we should think in terms of family, and because we don't think in terms of family, we've missed a lot. Um, So kind of honing in on one aspect of of what it means to think familial, to think in terms of family, is that we need to think generationally. Um, And as I was preparing this and and considering it, um, the right word is probably re-examining the word generational and kind of what goes on in our minds and our hearts when we hear that. Uh, in the scope that we think of when we see that. So, um, in our outline, the first thing we're going to talk about is just generally generations and genealogies in Scripture, more proof that God uses this language. Then we're going to talk about lost generations. We're going to talk about kind of where things have gone wrong for us and what wrong thinkings we may have. And hopefully when we're, we're considering that, we consider our mindsets towards generational thinking. And then we're going to re-examine it and see how we probably should be thinking about it. And then after that, we're going to uh, use an analogy of trees and try and apply this to our lives, um, how Scripture does it. So let's get into things without further ado. Generations and genealogies in Scripture. Let me see real quick. First off, um, there are three genealogies in Genesis alone. And beyond that, there's actually uh, about 25 genealogies total in Scripture. Um, More if you count count it in a different way other than just a list of names. Uh, And I'll get into that maybe a little bit. And also, um, I put here that each gospel has a genealogy of Christ, and that's a bit of a misnomer, uh, but I'll explain later. There really are four. uh, uh, Just take my word for it. Um, I'll tell you later why I think there's four. Uh, One for each gospel. The next thing... uh, So, like, there's these genealogies all throughout Scripture, and a lot of times, uh, I'm guilty of this, I skip over them because who wants to read a list of names, right? Um, But but Scripture seems to think they're important, so we need to think they're important. Uh, 
One we see, and this is kind of one you can, can consider how we think a little differently about a genealogy, but uh, Genesis 3.5 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here, if you count, the way, count genealogies the way I'm counting them, uh, this is a genealogy, uh, talking about the woman, Eve, and her seed, her offspring. That's a family. That's a, a lineage. And then Abraham. Uh, what we do know about Abraham is that Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. Um, I am one of them, and so are you. <laughs> yeah, so Christiana made me maybe say that one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, Genesis 15, 2 through 6. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look, now towards heaven, and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So it was a big deal to Abraham, Abraham, Abram at the time, to, to have children. He, he had this promise from the Lord and said, uh, how am I going to do what you want, Lord, uh, seeing as I don't even have a child. Um, and the Lord promised him children. So it was a big deal to, to Abram, Abraham. David, Second uh, Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, there's that term again, seed, offspring, after you, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will ch chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So David knew that at some point he was going to die. And if his kingdom was supposed to be established forever, he would need sons. So that's a generational thing. Uh, you know, God is eternal, but we are not eternal beings. So if on earth our kingdom is supposed to last forever, it's going to take a lot of generations to do that. So this, is, this whole section was just to prove, like it's in scripture. It's a thought. It's the way um, our forefathers thought. Right? They thought in terms of children and, and the people who came before them. And they thought in terms of generations and long-term thoughts. Um, and we're going to see that we don't necessarily think that way, I don't think. I haven't seen in our culture an emphasis on this. So, what I do see in in our culture is radical individualism. That's a term we throw around a lot. 
Radical kind of means at the root of. Uh, it means to your very core. In our, in our culture, to our very core, we are individualistic. One scripture to go along with this is, is one I've, I've tried to memorize and uh, often leads me to repentance. It leads me to community. Um, Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So that kind of sums up our culture. This, this idea that um, desire to isolate ourselves, uh, it's in everything we do, it's in the movies we watch, it's in how we look back at the, the history of our country. Uh, it's, it's at the core of, of who we are as Western, uh, you know, Americans, as what seeps into our culture. Like, this is probably one of the best ways to define Americans is radical individuals. One of the outworkings of this, you could call it an outworking or a cause. I don't know if chicken or the egg. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what I said here is, is pride of self-discovery, and that's kind of a double entendre, uh, seeing like uh, discovering yourself and discovering by yourself, right? Um, you know, there's this idea in our culture about finding ourselves, and there's a pride that goes along with that. As in, I can't take a handout from my dad who wants to hand down a business to me. I need to go and find my own way. I need to find myself, right? Um, also, it's discovering for yourself, right? We have this idea that uh, every idea has to be novel if it's a good one, right? Um, this, Sam and Anvesh could probably tell you, this plagues uh, research in the academic world. Right? How many research projects, like, it's not a good one unless it's a novel idea. And because of that, we get a lot of bad ideas. Right? Because there's nothing new under the sun. That's, a, that's why I added this Ephesians verse, is because this is so anti-God and anti-what he wants for us. It goes so far that even, even the grace that we're given, the faith that we have, the salvation we have, it, he's saying, it came from me, not from you. Because if it came from you, if it was up to you to become a Christian, like if, if one day you woke up and discovered God for yourself, or while trying to find yourself, you found out that you're a Christian, you would have, you'd be able to boast in your works. You'd be able to boast in, in everything you do. You would become God yourself. You'd say, I was, I was more capable of saving myself than God was, is the heart that we often have in our culture. Right? Say that's part of what that is exactly. 
Yeah, I would say that's that's definitely a part of one of the greater, the sin of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good or, or evil is God said, if you eat of it, you'll become God like yourself, right? Knowing good from evil. You'll, right, that's what Satan said. And, and that's the warning was you aren't going, you're going to make up what you think is good and evil, right? Um, the truth is we really do need God telling us what to do. The truth is we really need uh, people to come before us and do a lot of legwork for us. The truth is anything worth being built was built over generations, over years. So this is, because of our self-discovery, our, our wanting to find ourselves and, and wanting to figure things out ourselves, we've been full of pride, and that pride shows itself in our view of history. Um, how many of us have looked back at history and thought about, you know, reading a story about history and thought, wow, they were really dumb back then. <laughs> yeah, when you call, call forefathers cavemen, uh, or you call everything they do antiquated, right? They're just some old dusty dude who did something the wrong way, and we finally figured it out. Right, so this is, I mean, this is how we even look. I mean, how many of us have told our parents that they just don't understand? Right? <laughs> right. We do that all the time. You just don't get it. And then our parents, in turn, tell us, when you're, when you're older, you'll understand. And we're like, mm, no. Well, I'm here to tell you, Every time my parents have told me, when you're older, you'll understand, uh, up to this point, I I'm starting to understand. <laughs> they were right, is what I'm saying. And if I had listened to them, I could have saved myself a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And that's that same way with history, right? Now this, this whole di idea of socialism and communism's uh, becoming coming back into vogue, right? Uh, and the popular phrase is, they just never did it right. They never tried it right. Well, no. Read your history. It hasn't worked out ever. And there's been great strides to try and make it work. Currently, people are trying to make it work. And it's a disaster. Because we have a bad view of history. We look down on people in the past. And say, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, how can, how can a college freshman say they know more than the founding fathers? Like, those guys were pretty smart. They were sharp people. They were the best of the best. All right? And that's, that's not to say that uh, there's, as history goes on, things build, and they are better, but it's not because of what we've done. It's because... Other people have paid the price already. They've laid the groundwork. They've done the foundation. They've made the mistakes. Uh, so hopefully we don't have to. Amen. Deuteronomy 32, 7 says, this is, you know, this is what, how God wants us to think. It says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. 
If you've got a question, chances are someone's already had the question, tried out all the answers, failed a few times, and found, found the right one. And because of this poor view of history, um, there's a word, uh, extrapolation, and that's kind of like a math statistics science word, right, where you can take past data, plot it on a graph, and draw a line and predict what's going to happen in the future, right? So if you've got, imagine your life is a point in time, okay? You're one point. You can't tell me, you can't draw a line from one point and predict the future. But if you have history, you have points that come before you, you can now draw that line and it, it'll show you the future. It'll show you, it'll give you a hope. You have a better idea of how things are going. You know, all the people who say that, uh, you know, there's a, a common feeling, uh, error, there's a, a feeling in the air, you say, um, in our culture that's terrified and think things are, we think things are getting really bad, right? We're terrified. We think the world's falling apart, right? But if you know history, you can look back in history and say, well, uh, you know, dentistry wasn't a thing, right? Um, the survival rate of babies, uh, you know, was way down. And unfortunately, we're trying to compensate with abortion. But that's because we don't know history. We don't know the value of children. We have this pride that we have to figure out that. Uh, and it's happening now. There's people all over the world screaming and crying and saying, we don't have enough kids in the world. We're not going to be able to support <laughs> the earth. You know, like forever people are trying to tell us we're going to have overpopulation. Now all the experts are saying we're going to have underpopulation. Right? Who would have guessed a culture that loves abortion would have underpopulation? We didn't learn our lesson from history where babies died often because medical care wasn't good. You know, we can talk about our wars, um, but I can tell you they're not nearly as bloody as they were in, in the past. Right? It's, it's crazy for us to think of, like, however many thousands of men died in the, you know, the war on terrorism, but how many millions have died throughout history? Literally a hundred years war. <laughs> yeah, like, this is... If you know history, you know things aren't getting more violent. They're getting less violent. Right? Slavery has been pushed into the shadows. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. The Lord knows these thoughts, and if we read the Old Testament, we, we know about the history of the church. We can see those thoughts in action, and we can know that God, the same God that was God over the Israelites and brought them out of Egypt and saved them is the same God that's God over us, who's going to bring us out of our circumstance, who's going to rescue us, who's not going to leave us slaves.
That's what history does for us. And we have a, a very low view of that. So let's try and re-examine how we should think about this. We see how we shouldn't think, so let's, let's think how we should. Um, so one key point is when you're thinking about generations, I think it's important that we understand and know covenant theology. Um, we've had a lot of teachings on this. If you want to try and look through our sermon series, read a book on covenant theology, um, I'm sure Stephen could talk to you for a while on it, or someone, anyone would want to talk to you about covenant theology for a while. But in thinking about generations, I think it's important we think about covenants, about the promise the Lord has made with his people. Because he makes promises with, a, you know, if you go back through scripture, you see the patriarchs. Remember when I was talking about, I was reading off the, the genealogies, I read about Adam and Eve and, and the curse to, the, to Satan that was actually a promise to Eve that her seed would crush to the head of Satan. And then we talked about Abraham and we talked about David. These, are, these were all circumstances where God was making a covenant or making a promise with these men and in the same breath, he's, what is he promising? Generations. Um, and if you you consider covenant theology, you'll see one theme that's that's uh, really beneficial to this uh, to this thinking is that for each of those people, it wasn't a new covenant, right? I, I use that term, but it it wasn't necessarily new. It was it was a fuller, more clear picture of the same same covenant same covenant that's always been, right? that Satan would be crushed, that God would do it. He'd, he'd uh, this literary term is like, kill the dragon, get the girl, right? That Satan would be crushed and the church would be saved. And that's the same covenant that's been throughout all of, all of history, all of the Old Testament. But each time you see it become clearer, what does it really mean? What's the full picture of this? Hebrews 11, 9 through 10 says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, this is talking about Abraham, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is talking about Abraham, and it says there that Isaac and Jacob had the same promise. They had the same covenant with God. And Abraham was called out of, of his home into a desert to wander. He didn't know where he was going. God didn't tell him where he was going. But he knew he was going to a city that God would make. Abraham never saw this. But he had faith that it was going to happen. And you could say maybe, maybe David and, and Solomon saw this. Right? Maybe they saw the answer to this and how great Jerusalem was. was. I think that's a pretty good, it's much clearer to them what that city would look like than it was to Abraham, maybe. Right? It was, it was, uh, there's a little bit more stone they could touch. They could see the buildings, maybe. 
But even that, you know, we know uh, about a, a greater foundation than these stone foundations. We know about Christ, Amen. our foundation. We know about a city made by God that's, that can't be destroyed. And so where even Solomon and David, you know, in the, all the glory of Jerusalem had a, a better vision or a better view of what, what Abraham was looking forward to, we have an even greater vision of that. We can see even clearer. And, and if it weren't for the faith of these forefathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, maybe we wouldn't have seen the realization of that, right? It took them. It took their lives. It took, God built this over time, this vision. And guess what? If you think you have a pretty clear picture of this, this city, this foundation, uh, just imagine the vision your children will have of it and your children's children, and so on. You know, a hundred years from now, they're going to know what it looks like better than we do. So covenants become clear over time. Also, one aspect of a covenant is uh, if, it's, if there's a, you know, there's kind of a, a mission tied into God's covenant with us that, you know, it's go forth and be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth, that's a part of the promise. That's a, this mission is a part of the promise, and, and that mission is the same for everybody. right? Like I just said in Genesis one twenty eight, says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That same mission is the same mission we have. That's the same mission Abraham had, right? I think you get pretty close to filling the earth if you had as many sons as there were stars. Right. If you only had like two or three sons, I don't think you're going to fill the whole earth. But you can only have so many kids in your lifetime. So how are we going to have all these kids? I don't know. <laughs> how are we going to fill the earth with kids? Right? Can't do it in a lifetime. That's where generations come in. So another aspect of this is the idea of multiplication, and that, that you can see that in how the covenants become clearer, but also generations multiply over time. Uh, this is another math idea. Uh, a generation is like, like an exponent, you know, and if you got a guy and a girl together, they're two, and if you got an exponent up here is how many generations. Each generation, like, let's say you have two kids. Uh, I don't know, maybe that doesn't work. Two kids each time then they get married, now there's four, and then they have two kids, and now they get married, now there's eight. And you see, it's not, you're just, you're not adding to each, each generation, you're multiplying by two each generation. And that grows really fast. And not only do, do the numbers grow and multiply, the, the mission or the heart of that people, of that, those generations, multiply and grow. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we read, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So you can also see this in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where it says that the Lord visits the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation, but showing steadfast love and mercy to thousands of those who love him and keep his commands. There's an idea here that, you know, it goodness goes for a really long time and it's it's like a generational thing. And evil is a generational thing. Uh, Genesis four twenty three through twenty four says that Lamech said to his wives, Can hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This is Cain's descendant here. Generations removed. And he's like, you know, if Cain's like seven evil, I'm seventy-seven evil. Right? If you think my father was bad, wait till you see me. Right? Who is who is the king that said like I'll whip you with with Rebel. Yeah. Rabel? Yeah. That like evil can multiply just as goodness multiplies and grows. Okay? So that's an idea like let's keep that in our minds. Another point here is God always preserves a remnant. Okay? There are there's a temptation when we see seasons or we see movements of God. You know, we can say like, here's where the Israelites were in the desert or here's where they were in Egypt as slaves or here's when, uh, you know, they were captives in Babylon and here's when they returned back to Israel. Here's, here's the, the church right after Jesus died, the New Testament church. Uh, and here's the church, you know, the Roman Catholic Church before the Protestant Reformation. Here's the, we kind of like to lump it into groups and treat those as blocks. But that's a wrong idea about how generations work. They don't, generations aren't like if you had blocks and each person was a block and you can just stack them on top. And if you take one out, you still get a pretty good idea about the the lineage, right? And and it doesn't really change everything up above if you remove a block. Uh, that's not how it is. God hasn't separated times and ages. He he always takes one person from the last age, at least, and, and he continues expanding this idea, right? He continues making the covenant clearer and clearer. So Matthew 3, 9. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Like This is an important idea that it's not just necessarily because of this idea of remnants and that it doesn't necessarily have to be a natural born child. It means that 
that we all have access or ability to become children, to be grafted into this family. And that brings us to Matthew twenty-one forty-three. Uh, let's actually go to a different verse. I think I want to read something else that better suits this. Let's go to Romans eleven seventeen through 18, if that's possible. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them becoming a partaker of the root, and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We've been grafted into this family. Like that, that idea that um, God can take someone else, a stranger or someone who's not a natural descendant and make them a natural descendant is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Let's, let's see how that, all these things apply to us. So when thinking about the covenant and thinking about how it becomes clearer and clearer, um, again, we go back to Genesis 3.15 uh, and the, the promise to Adam and Eve, which was a curse to Satan, says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's just a promise that the seed will bruise the head of the, of the serpent, of Satan. That's a, that's a brief picture of this covenant, of this promise. If you jump forward to Matthew 7, 17 through 20, we can see a little bit clearer what that promise means to us. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So here's the seed that's supposed to crush the head of Satan. And looking back, we see Christ was that seed. He defeated sin and death. And from him, from the the vine, where we get our life, we're supposed to bear fruit. What's that fruit look like? If you go through scripture, you see that fruit is like, oh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is a fruit that crushes the head of Satan. That is a clearer picture of what it means that Eve's seed would crush the head of Satan. Every time you repent, you're crushing Satan's head. Talk about the fruits of the Spirit, right? Every time uh, you're patient, you're crushing Satan's head. Right? Good fruit. Like, what is good fruit? We need to know that. We have access in Scripture to know what good fruit looks like. We know what, what the tree that the seed would become would look like. We get to see that. We get to be a part of that. We don't have to be left in the dark or, or blind to this. We get to see um, the fruit of this. That's, that's cool. I mean, we don't... How, 
Adam and Eve probably held on to this promise to them really tightly. And they're like, we have no idea how you're going to do this, God, but we just have to have faith that you're going to do that. Just how Abraham had to have faith that a city was actually going to be built. Right? He's like, I, have, I don't even have a child yet, God. Not a single one. How am I going to build a city? I'm in a desert alone. How am I going to build a city? How are you going to build a city, God? Right? He had faith that God would do it. And it took a lot of generations, and it's taken a lot of generations, but the city is being built. And this mission that we've, we've been passed on to, so what is our mission? You know, if I said the, the same mission of old was, was your mission, uh, what is our mission? Our mission is go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, because that's what Jesus did. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. We're supposed to make disciples and teach. We're supposed to pass on to the next generation. That's our mission. So, and if we're thinking about how that covenants or generations become more evil or more good, um, the question then is like, what fruit are you going to bear with your life? What part are you going to play uh, as you're a generation? Are you going to be a generation who, who advances life and goodness? Or are you going to be a generation who advances evil? Right? Um, there's a... How many of us carry baggage or trauma from our own parents that we end up carrying on to our children. But the truth is, you don't have to pass on your parents' trauma to your children because you can be grafted into a new family. And by being grafted into a new family, it's not just taking a block and being put over here where the block stays the same you're being grafted into a new tree where your nutrients, your whole life, the thing that provides you life is different and new. Like, do you see how that's different? Our idea is like, I joined a new family, I'm going to be the same person. No, you've been grafted into a new family. Your source of life is different. You don't have to pass on, if your dad was an alcoholic, you don't have to be an alcoholic. You don't have to set up your child to be an alcoholic. Your child can have a different starting point than you did. You were abused by your parent. You don't have to abuse your child. You can move past that because you've been grafted into a new family, to a new tree. Your source of life, the thing, your desires, the thing that makes you do what you do has changed. That's, that's the beauty of being grafted. So what fruit are we going to bear? Right? Proverbs 22, 6 says we should train up a child in the way they should go. And they won't depart from it. 
Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the words of God to you, whose faith you should follow, consider the outcome of their conduct, right? You should, not only should you train up your children, but you should find leaders, elders, people uh, to teach you how you should go. Don't try and figure this all out on your own. Thinking generationally means that you are humble enough to know that there's been thousands of generations before you setting you up for success. Setting you up uh, to serve the Lord in a more clear way than ever before. You know, I, when I think about generations, I think about, it's like, if you're going on a trail, the first person who blazed that trail, right, had... It probably took them forever. They were, you know, maybe they had a machete. They're cutting through all these uh, thistles and uh, you know, branches and vines and all this stuff that's in their way. And they're probably getting, like, really itchy legs. And they probably got ticks on them and all this stuff. And it was probably miserable and terrible and very difficult. And then the next guy comes along, you know, a few days later and... Uh, it's probably not as bad. It's still kind of tough. Maybe new grass has grown and there's still thorns and stuff, but there's not all these vines in the way and they can get through it okay, kind of easy. But by the thousandth person that walks through that trail, it's, it's a dirt path that's solid, that isn't muddy, and it's wide, and it's easy to go through. And it gets easier each person who follows that path. And that's us. You don't have to blaze a new trail, guys. You can follow in the footsteps of those who have set, who've walked before you. We need to know what they've done so we can start from there and make the trail easier for our children, for the next generations, for our spiritual descendants. Hebrews 12.1 calls it a great cloud of witnesses. So when you consider how difficult it is to overcome a sin or to live sold out for God, like totally just this mission is my life, if you want to live that way, it's not saying that you should, the writer of Hebrews isn't saying like just do it, work it up yourself, blaze a new trail, good luck. He's saying, because of this great cloud of witnesses, because of all these people who came before you, you can lay aside every hindrance. Right? So that's just, uh, that's the end of the sermon. I encourage you all to think this way, to think like you're part of a tree and not just some blip on a timeline. Um, that you've been called to something that your identity isn't just yourself. It's tied into um, this bigger picture. And proof of that, proof that genealogies, this is my last point, and I forgot to add this point. I told you I was going to tell you why there's four genealogies in the Gospels. Okay? And I will. There's four genealogies in the Gospels 
because each one of them is different and they tell us about who Christ is. They show us who he is. Your genealogy is a bigger part of your identity than... Like, you're not going to find yourself and find a new identity. You're, the only hope you can have is finding out what, what lineage you're a part of. That tells you a lot about who you are. And if you're grafted into the Lord's genealogy, that tells you a lot about who you're going to be. Because you're someone new. So in the Gospels, we start with Matthew, who's has a genealogy all the way from Abraham to Christ. Um, and if you think about this genealogy, the main picture, it's trying to show us that Christ is the Messiah. He's the promised seed. Mark, uh, you know, I said there's genealogy in all of them. Uh, well, Mark doesn't actually have a genealogy. But the genealogy in Mark is the fact that there isn't one tells us that um, Christ is a servant. A servant doesn't get a genealogy. A slave didn't get a genealogy. That's who Christ was. He was a servant to us, or to the Lord, more accurately, and he served us. He voluntarily served us. Luke, we see a genealogy all the way from Adam to Christ. Um, showing his humanity, showing, him, showing us that Christ was a man. And in John, we see the Word became flesh. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We see Christ's divinity. We see that he is God. And all of these aspects are important to understand who Christ is. And if you want to know who you are, I think you need to understand where you came from and where you're going. And you need to understand who your fathers were and who your children will be. So, Lord, thank you for today. Um, thank you for grafting us into your family and giving us a new heritage, a new inheritance. We pray that you would uh, bless our our children and our spiritual descendants, that they will know you and be grafted into your family, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.